Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, December 18th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, this week, President-elect Joe Biden continued to roll out his picks for the top jobs in his administration with a focus on the environment, introducing what he called a, quote, tested team of bold thinkers who know how to pull every lever of government to take on the urgent existential threat of climate change. His choices include rival Pete Buttigieg for Secretary of Transportation and former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm at Energy. We'll talk about the evolving Biden team and whether progressives are getting what they want from Biden, at least when it comes to green politics. And in keeping with the American ethos that all our needs and desires should be fulfilled instantly, we are apparently no longer talking about the Biden administration's first 100 days. We're talking about what has been called his day one agenda. Those items that those same progressives say can be accomplished by executive order, apparently on January 21st, immediately after his virtual inaugural, which we'll talk about as well. Joining me to discuss all this are Tom Babin, president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and Karen Tumulty, columnist for The Washington Post and the author of the forthcoming book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, which will be out this spring. So, Tom, let's first talk about the names that have been added to the Biden team this week, which at least some people interpret as showing a greater emphasis on the issue of climate change. Jennifer Granholm, who we mentioned, uh, Michael Regan at the EPA. Uh, New Mexico Representative Deb Holland at Interior, and of course, Mayor Pete at Transportation. So Tom, is the environment the area where progressives are getting the influence they demand from uh, Biden? You know, maybe. I think it's too early to tell. You know, his appointments suggest that there might be some, you know, progressive policy push, but but maybe not. You know, there was this leaked transcript of him talking about executive orders and, and what he's willing to do, what he's not willing to do. If it violates the Constitution, that got a lot of play because, you know, he was really pushing back on the idea that he was going to go in there and just go sort of whole hog pushing executive authority to the limit. So I, I think we have to wait and see exactly how the Biden administration proceeds. I mean, much of the chatter this week was around the idea of whether cabinet appointees need relevant experience. I mean, Pete Buttigieg, you know, announced in, in his announcement, he said, you know, I used to love trains when I was a little guy, and I, I proposed to my husband in an airport terminal, as if these are somehow, you know, relevant claims to being the transportation secretary of the United States. Jennifer Granholm, the same thing. So I think that's part of where the discussion is. Now, maybe Pete Buttigieg will be a great transportation secretary. We don't know. I would guess that the Senate's going to be inclined to confirm him. But certainly, I think these cabinet appointees are going to, they're going to face those questions when they sit before the Senate committees. So Karen, how, how progressive do you view these new names? I think they are pretty much in the mainstream of democratic policymaking. I mean, Deb Holland obviously was, you know, championed by a lot of liberal groups, by a lot of Hollywood people. Mm-hmm. But my hunch is on the environment, he's got a few priorities. You know, he wants to rejoin the Paris Accords. He wants to do something meaningful. But he, you know, Joe, Joe Biden did not and will not embrace the, the Green New Deal. And as always, with the modern presidency, policy is generally set in the White House, not in cabinet agencies. Carl, what do you think? Karen's right. But if you can get a sense of a president's priorities by who his cabinet officials are, and 
what's emerging is is a picture of Joe Biden's priorities. Climate change is one of them. The two finalists for EPA were Mary Nichols, a Californian who's really done, um, if, if that's your issue, terrific work out there, California uh, on emissions. And she was torpedoed by an odd 11th hour push by progressives who said she hasn't done enough for environmental social justice, but that's not really her that wasn't her job. But the guy they picked, African-American, Michael Regan, who'd been at EPA and was doing the same kind of function down in North Carolina. I mean, unlike Pete Buttigieg's at transportation, the EPA guy is very well qualified for his job. Uh, another thing is these are very, this is a very partisan, these are partisan Democrats. And mm-hmm. a little, we're in a partisan age. You know, the, the new interior secretary celebrated her historic appointment. She's Native American, but with a tweet attacking Trump. I mean, <laughs> the campaign continues. And of course, Pete Buttigieg was one of the most outspoken uh, attackers of the president during the primaries. And the, and the thing that Tom alluded to, Peter Zane had a column for us. I guess Kennedy had the best and the brightest and FDR had the brain trust. Well, this could be the fedora cabinet. He threw a bunch of names in a hat of people he wanted, and then they just picked the agency out of the hat. Again, although the brain trust is interesting because FDR had made James Farley his postmaster general, and it wasn't because Farley knew anything about the U.S. mails. He was his campaign manager. So there's a long tradition of doing that. But so you you got partisan people. Climate change is a big issue. And the third thing I say, it's it's very diverse. I mean, nine are women, eight are men. I think seven are white, five are black. Two are Asian, one's Native American, and uh, two two Hispanic. So, it's a very you know it's the that that old phrase you know a, a cabinet that looks like America. Well, this is a cabinet that looks like you know the Democratic Party electorate mm-hmm. in the twenty first century. Can I just say though, I think there's a real mix um, in, in subject areas. For instance, his foreign policy team is very very deeply experienced in foreign policy. I mean, these are, but then you, you look at HHS and I don't think Javier Becerra would have been on anybody's short list to be running health policy. Then you go over to agriculture and, you know, Tom Vilsack has been agriculture secretary for how many times now? And he's from <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> right. So it, there, there's a real, there, there, you, you cannot really say there's like a pattern here. And I, I'm going to be most interested in seeing what direction he takes for attorney general. Bernie Sanders was interviewed this week and he said, you know, diversity is all well and good, but he was more interested in their ideology, frankly, was what he was driving at um, and seemed to be sort of a little displeased with the sort of centrist nature of the pick so far, at least from his point of view. Tom, is Biden going to really face pushback and an issue with uh, the progressives if he fills out this team and they feel they haven't gotten their pound of flesh. Sure. I mean, he's he's doing a balancing act and, and he's never going to please everyone. If he had appointed a bunch of, you know, progressives to these positions, he would have faced a bunch of pushback from from centrists. And so he's trying to, to thread this needle. He's been doing a fairly effective job. You know, the one area, I mean, his his defense secretary pick asking members of you know Congress for to vote for a waiver when they just just four um, years after they raised yeah, hell about that. Right. Exactly. Just four years after they made a big stink about it over Mattis. I think that was probably a mistake. Uh, there's been some grumbling about that. So 
uh, all in all, I think he's tried to manage this. He was never going to be able to manage it perfectly. I think he's managed it fine. I mean, I think there have been some bumps in the road, and in hindsight, could he could have done a better job, not only with the, the picks themselves, but the rollout of the picks, and you know, giving his giving his different constituencies a little more input and feedback and heads up, quite frankly, that he was going to nominate some of these people. I mean, a couple of them came as, as complete surprises. So it hasn't been perfect. It hasn't been awful. But, but, there's, but yeah, there's still some to go, Tom, like this Karen, Karen was saying. So, I mean, at labor, he could get hell. He could make Bernie Sanders. Right. I mean, he could he could still do some of that. I don't expect that he's going to do that. I have to throw in a just a minor discussion about Rahm Emanuel because, mm-hmm. you know, Rahm has it seems like Rahm's name has been in the hat and they've been you know trying to find a spot for him. But they can't because every time his name gets mentioned, he gets complete. You know, he's been basically blacklisted from from the Democratic Party, from any, you know, major position. Because of what he did here in Chicago, where he covered up the tape of the a police shooting of Laquan McDonald, this young man who was African-American kid, he was gunned down and, and shot 16 times in the streets of Chicago. He had a knife, but he was running away from cops. And there's a whole thing. But Rom basically buried that uh, to, to help him win re-election, which he barely won. And it came out after the fact. And since that time, he's basically been sort of persona non grata uh, to, to a lot of Democrats, even though he's managed to get himself back on television and writing articles in the Atlantic and whatnot. But they've wanted to find a position for him. They just haven't been able to. And, and because of the pushback that they've gotten from the progressives, basically. Well, I want to switch topics a little bit, Karen. I want to talk a little bit about this day one agenda and this idea that the president has a pen and a phone, which is, I think, the way Baracko put it in 2014, when he was talking about using the pen to sign executive orders and the phone to call up people to uh, push for his agenda and sort of bypass, to the extent he can, the Senate and the House. Is that really what we're going to see from Biden? It doesn't sound like it's something Biden wants to do, but will he be forced to do it? And how is he going to handle this? You know, I think in some areas, he is going to be forced to do some things. I think you're likely to see some early executive orders, for instance, rolling back some of the stuff that President Trump did on immigration. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm, I'm just sort of going by what we know of Joe Biden, which is he is pretty much of an institutionalist. I think he's going to be pretty strategic about it. I also think he is going to be sensitive to the fact that being too aggressive with executive orders is going to sink any effort that he might be making to try and work with Republicans on Capitol Hill, which is something he seriously seems to believe that that he can do. And to go hog wild with executive orders would be a guarantee that that would not work. There is one he could do right away, Andy, that would not put him in any conflict with Mitch McConnell if if Mitch McConnell turns out to be someone he has to deal with, we'll know after January 5th. But there's a, and I believe Biden is actually pledged to issue a new executive order on White House ethics. And that's something that nobody in Congress would begrudge him. And that's the executive branch. Uh, th- that might be one of the, he might do that day one. And I think that would send an interesting signal. And the other thing I think uh, the, the, the president-elect could do after January 20th is, President Trump signed various executive orders, adding burdens to uh, anti-union orders in federal procurement and public employees unions. I think Biden could take that back to the status quo without causing a problem. But it it would send an important signal to his 
to Bernie Sanders' constituents, to the pro-labor element in the Democratic Party. So Ron Ron Bronstein had a piece in The Atlantic, uh, which I think we linked to at Real Clear. And he said that this was sort of a generational thing, too, that Biden might be the last person in Washington who believes that you can work with the Republicans and that Kamala Harris and younger uh, people, even though that she's a product of the Senate as well, she's a product of a sort of a different Senate. And so, Tom, I'm wondering, is that true? Is, is Biden sort of the last guy who actually thinks that bipartisanship is, is possible? Uh, and is he right or You're wrong? You're asking the wrong guy. Tom doesn't believe it either. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny because it, it doesn't help things when Biden's campaign manager comes out in an interview and calls all Republicans fuckers. You know? <laughs> oh, come on. You know that. <laughs> If you if you read the context of what she was saying, it was an argument that it is, in fact, possible for Biden to work with a Republican Senate. I mean, that to read the reaction to that comment versus to read the comment itself. And I am so amazed at how many Republicans are are close readers of Glamour magazine. Uh, (laughs) The the point that Jen O'Malley Dillon was making is that bipartisanship and compromise should be given a chance. Karen, I will say, you know, folks on the right reacted to that comment, but, but I saw plenty of folks on the left reacting to that comment saying basically, you know, she is right. All Republicans are fuckers. And, and there isn't, let me put it this way. There doesn't seem to be a lot of comp, uh, uh, appetite for compromise uh, in Washington. I do think Biden does still believe in the old way of doing business. Now, whether he's going to be able to do that or not remains to be seen. But I, there certainly, uh, I think, on the on the left and the right, uh, the prevailing attitude is that that compromise is is still. Uh, for the most part, a dirty word, and and to do that is to somehow be, uh, you know, giving up on your first principles. And somewhere along the way, that's that that narrative changed. Um, I don't know that there's any changing it back. Maybe there is, but and maybe Joe Biden's the guy that will be able to do it. But at least right now, that's my my read on where things stand. Andy, can I say something about that? Sure. Um, in the first. So we're talking about the transition. In the very first days of the Barack Obama presidency, Joe Biden was vice president. And it was during the transition, the Democrats produced their stimulus bill. And it really wasn't actually Pelosi sort of gave it over to Dave Obie to do a old labor skate from Wisconsin. And he put everything in there that was in the Democratic Party wish list. Barack Obama takes the oath of office. He, he makes a couple comments like, you know, if the Republicans have ideas, I'm willing to listen to their ideas. And it wasn't. Really, that's not really where it was at. Republicans, they were like, wait a minute, you're marking up this bill already. You, you didn't ask for ideas and any ideas we bring up, you reject. Eric Cantor says this to the president in a meeting. And the president, Obama says, well, con- elections have consequences. So the Republicans had decided 48 hours in this guy's presence, he had no interest in negotiating with them and that he was, that it was all PR with this guy. Meanwhile, from President Obama's standpoint, a couple of times in those early negotiations, John Boehner thought he heard something he could live with, took it back to his caucus. And the first time they voted him down, public humili- rebuke. The second time, Cantor said, don't even take it to him. Mm-hmm. So 
Obama comes up with the very understandable conclusion, there's no point to dealing with these guys. He can't control his own conference. So that's the first week of the Obama administration. But what happens when they actually need something done later that year and the next year, when there's a debt ceiling, when there's a government shutdown, it looks like the the country's going to default. Obama sends a guy up to the hill he knows can negotiate with Mitch McConnell. The guy he sends is Joe Biden. And they got it done, Biden and McConnell. Tom, just give us an update on what's going on in Georgia, because a lot of this will hinge on whether or not uh, what happens in those two races down in uh, in Georgia on January 5th. Well, we've had some some new polls come out just in the last week, three of them. And both races are, are very, very close. I mean, if you look at the Purdue-Ossoff race, Purdue's leading by just a uh, you know, a 1.2% in our average. She's up three points in one poll, one point in another, and then and then one's tied. Um, and Kelly Loeffler's up two-tenths of 1%. I mean, it's basically tied. So, look, and this is reflective of what just happened on November 3rd. I mean, both parties turned out their voters. They know where they are. They're working to turn them out again. Seems like enthusiasm is, you know, it's not what it was, but, but there's still so much focus, so much effort, so much money being spent in Georgia that both parties are going to be able to to get a lot of their voters to the polls even on January 5th. And I think it's going to be very close. And I do, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I I completely buy the conventional wisdom that this is a package deal that, you know, Republicans are either going to win both or lose both. I don't see Democrats turning out and voting for, for one candidate and just, you know, not voting for the other and certainly not voting for the Republican and, and vice versa. So I think uh, I think both races are going to go the same way, but right now they're both very very close. Tom, let me ask you something about that. Why couldn't a voter vote against uh, against Kelly Loeffler because of this insider training thing she has? You know, uh, and we're talking about independent voters now, not Democrats or Republicans, uh, and split their own ticket. And say, you know, I I like Purdue. I think John Ossoff's too green. Uh, I like Reverend Warnock. I don't like Loeffler. I mean, why couldn't you vote for Warnock and Purdue? I can see Purdue. myself doing that. <laughs> But Purdue's got some stock trading issues too. So yeah. if, if that if that motivates you, um, so they vote against both insider traders. <laughs> there, there was some polling I saw this week that, that said that people aren't splitting, uh, aren't likely to split their ticket. But Karen, I'm I'm curious, how important is this really? I mean, a lot of people think that with a 50-50 split or whatever the split is, you've still got those con- few conservative Democrats left who will be even more important. And that no matter what happens, the president is going to be bound by the politics of the Senate. Yeah, but the, the, it is there is a difference between, I mean, what the majority leader really gets to do is determine what gets to the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's extremely important. Given this, the nature of this Senate, it's hard to see anybody doing anything like really ambitious with the kind of votes that you have to pull together to get anything done. But as you know, as we saw with Mitch McConnell's, uh, uh, the leader gets to decide what the agenda is, and it's it's hard to overstate the importance of that. You know, as for Georgia goes. Man, I don't know. I wish I had a better feel for this. I um, I just have, I hate to say this real clear politics. I've just quit looking at the poll. <laughs> Andy, oh, can you Aaron. can you edit that out, please? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say also just interject. The other thing about who controls the Senate is who controls the committees and what gets investigated, what does not. And we saw some of that. You know, Republicans are going to want to continue to investigate. You know, Hunter Biden and the Biden administration, they're going to, you know, continue to want to investigate 
probably you know election interference and and those sorts of things. So it does matter uh, who controls the Senate for for those I don't want to say intangible reasons, but reasons that are the you know lesser than just you know whether legislation gets passed or not. Well. Uh- Carl, I want to talk about this inaugural for a second, which is coming up January 20th, and we're, we're learning more about it. It's going to be largely virtual. Uh, last time we had Karen on, we were talking about the conventions, as I recall, and there was a nice spirited debate about whether conventions are, are, are worthwhile anymore uh, with Karen. And I, I'm thinking about this inaugural. Looking back at the last one, Trump team raised $107 million for the inaugural. It is still being investigated. Ivanka Trump uh, had to uh, testify uh, just earlier this month on this inaugural. You know, the, the, the committees are set up by the president-elect. Uh, they can take unlimited donations, uh, including from corporations. They have to be reported to the FPC. But, you know, other than that, it's sort of anything goes. Is it time to rethink these uh, inaugurals? And, and, or, or, or do you like them? You're, you're a big pomp and circumstance guy. I know you like these traditions. Well, <laughs> well I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to channel Sean Spicer here. I guarantee you that the crowd at Joe Biden's inauguration will be smaller than Donald Trump's. <laughs> um, listen, you know, we're on the verge of a vaccine to COVID-19. We're also losing upwards of 3,500 American lives a day. This is no time for an, yet another mass rally. And Joe Biden has indicated two dozen times he understands that. But the Democrats could, and as far as the money, that I don't care about that one way or the other. And when we're passing trillion dollar stimuluses so that our Karen and Tom's and ours and yours great grandchildren will still be paying for the bills the baby boomers are running up, $100 million. I'm glad they're getting corp- corporations not stealing it from the future taxpayers. But I think the, the idea is, this, is to get creative and do a virtual convention and excuse me, a virtual inauguration. I thought the Democrats and Republicans were both very creative how they did their conventions. And there's a lot more that could go into that. And I think you could see some very imaginative and moving things. Think about more like Olympic opening ceremonies. Uh, and it, you know, you don't need 700,000 people there. You, you could have 2000 there and you could pull off um, something. And, you know, I, I don't know what the over under is on when Joe Biden finally says, our long national nightmare is over, but you know, I don't know if it's December 31st or January 20th, but, but whenever that is, that's the spirit that this, that the Demo- that this party wants to convey to the voters and to the American people. And, and they can do that. They can do that without a huge expensive crowd. So they've limited the tickets to a thousand tickets, but they still are saying that this is going to cost a lot of money and they're going to have to raise a bunch of money. Karen, uh, where do you come down on this? $107 million for a virtual event with 1,000 people? Yeah, I, I think people need to pay attention to where that money goes. You know, what what vendors get paid, how much? I think that those are completely legitimate questions. One thing, though, and, and I agree with Carl, I found the conventions very moving, um, done virtually. I, I love the roll call of states at the Democratic one where they took the roll call to the country rather than forcing the country to come into the hall. I think the visuals from this inauguration beyond anything Joe Biden has to say that day will be the site of an inauguration platform where everybody is having to wear a mask and sit six feet apart and uh, will have had to have a test before they get on it is going to be a reminder of 
what moment in history we find ourselves in, and the sight of an African-American woman lifting her right hand and taking the the oath of office, I think is also going to be just really an enduring image of the day. Tom, where do you come down? I've said this before. I'm a I'm the opposite of the pomp and circumstance guy. I want this gone. I, I want conventions gone. I want State of the Unions gone. I want presidential libraries gone. I, like, I think we just do away with it all. Um, Tom, this so, is, it's real clear politics was the website you set up 20 years ago. I, I know, but I just think that the presidency itself has gotten you know, so, so deified to the point where we're do, we do all of these things. We don't need to be doing all this stuff. We really don't. The country doesn't need it um, to, to the point of the money being raised. I mean, it's just an absolute, you know, corporate boondoggle, which invites the kind of, uh, you know, swampiness that, that most Americans find repellent. So, Andy, are you going to get him get away with this? This is situational ethics. <laughs> ask Tom if he feels that way about the Super Bowl. <laughs> Go ahead, ask the him. Super Bowl, I love. Now you can spend as much money as you want on that. No, um, no, but I do think, and we, you know, the the question uh, is one of the questions that's going to be interesting is is, and we had a piece by Myra Adams on this uh, on Real Clear Politics. Earlier. Is Donald Trump going to attend? Is he mm-hmm. going to play along? with the norms and traditions of the peaceful transfer of power. Will he be at the White House? Will he have the Bidens over? Um, We don't know the answer to that yet. And with Donald Trump, we may not know the answer until the day before it happens or the day of, because that's just the way he is. Uh, So that's going to be part of the drama that's going to play out, which I think is is interesting. Um, But count me as one of the people who uh, we can we can get by without uh, a huge, massive even virtual um, inauguration. Well, I do think the, the visuals could be interesting if you have a small or a virtual uh, inaugural and then a Trump rally the next day or the day of, knowing Trump, uh, that would include the stadium full of people shouting about this. So it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see. This is going to be a different inaugural, and we will look forward to covering it on Real Clear Politics. So we're going to end it there. I'm going to thank uh, Karen Tumulty for being with us today, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, December 18th, and we'll see you next time. I'm Andrew Walworth. Thanks for listening. <laughs>